is the big ponder. The one sound that I remember emotionally was uh, back in Ravensworth Farm where I lived in Virginia. We were up the hill maybe four or five blocks from the swimming pool. They would have, you know, teenager night or something like that, and they would, and there would be a band playing. And so the sound came up from down the hill. And, you know, hearing that, like, oh... It was like I'm. I'm missing. There's. They're. They're having a lot of fun down there, and you know I need to be part of that fun. How do you imagine sound? These are great hard questions. Sound and imagination. I mean, I do imagine sound in. How do I imagine sound? Um, I imagine it very. I always imagine sound, and and the the other thing is I imagine what it might be because you know what it is. We did a whole series of, of things with West German Radio. Have you seen that folio? Didn't, didn't uh, Susan give that to you? I have a one here. A whole project with West German Radio that took years. Here it is. Eric Bowersfeld. Uh, with uh, Klaus Schoening and all of the people at West Deutsche Rundfunk that did radio drama. We, we translated, I don't know how many. It's all in this folio. And it's here somewhere, so I've got to find that for you. This one. Uh, so it must be among these. Listen, 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 yes. and play. Do something in your imagination, in your fantasy, uh, with this, what you are listening to. So it is on the side, the definition of the listener. Klaus Schoening. So play, take these sound, take these dramas, and open your imagination. Take it on and play and spiel. Let's let our listeners hear what they can and play what they will with the sounds that we are so marvelously experiencing here in an exotic little spot in Big Sur. Thanks, Cloud. Thank you. This was through the Goethe Institute. Uh-huh. There was a whole month. Die Brücke. Brücke? Yes, the bridge. The bridge between Germany and America in radio. See, this is the Golden Gate Bridge. I designed this, and this is the dome. And here's Klaus and uh, the Goethe Institute and me, and uh, this fellow translated the plays. Hirschbill, USA, we called it. And it went on throughout the month. He did a few more, and it went nationally. Westdeutscher Rundfunk, drittes Programm. At that time, I was involved with uh, developing a project in San Francisco for SF MoMA for the 50th anniversary of the Golden Gate Bridge. Sculpture Soundscapes. And that was called Sound Sculptures Through the Golden Gate. Bill Fontana. And what that was, going to be a live duet between the Golden Gate Bridge and the Farallon Islands National Wildlife Refuge, which is a seabird colony 30 nautical miles directly west of the Golden Gate Bridge. Klaus became very interested in this and decided that we would revisit the piece I'd done in 1985 with Metropolis Cologne and basically do a live duet between the city of Cologne and the sounds of Cologne and San Francisco with the Golden Gate Bridge and the Fairlawn Islands. 
You know the kinds of questions. We were talking about the acoustic imagination in many ways. Every art has its imagination. No art is more imaginative than any other art. Imagination is everywhere. There's a particular thing that we're interested in, which is what is acoustical imagination and how it works. And this has come up in many forms, in the, the ability to listen and the ability to hear things that other people don't hear. All artists do that. I mean, visual artists, uh, dance artists, no movement, sound more in ways than other people. As a child, I spent a ton of time in the woods, get up, you know, at the crack of dawn and then head down to the creek, follow the path down to the lake where I'd fish. And the woods are still there. And the path is still there. It's as strong as a memory that you that you get with smell as to the sounds and the the insects and the birds and it just takes takes you back. Well, when I was very small, I listened to radio when it first began, and it was a wonder to be able to hear the voices that came from outside your own house. And early radio here in America was very rich with all kinds of things, and they had a lot of children's programs. And it didn't too much matter whether the script was brilliant or the acting was... Even sound didn't have to be very profound, you know. One, there was something called... Buck Rogers in the 25th century. It was science fiction, even in the, when was this, the 30s? Way back. And they had all the space things and uh, all the, the things that we now have, and you could imagine them. They had a, something called a psychic restriction ray, which if you shot it at someone, it went like that, just like that's all. But you saw it, you imagined it, but you went all over the world on these things, outer space, everywhere. And this was new, totally new. Not exactly. We did it in play. We played games in the 20s, early 20s. And those games often had to do with all kinds of adventures, space travel. And they were things we made up, ships at sea. And so that was imaginative play. But then to hear it stimulated, not by your friends in the street and your imagination, but by another source of imagination, we are conceived, um, we develop in the womb, and four and a half months after conception, the hearing switch is turned on. Walter Murch. Sight is not turned on. Uh, we live in darkness in the womb. Uh, smell is not operative in the womb. Touch is a kind of a slippery, mucal uh, feeling. But hearing is as fully articulated at four and a half months as it will be later. So the child developing in the womb is a fully auditory creature. And so each of us in this room was born into consciousness. The, the developing fetus is a conscious being developing a sense of uh, the self and uh, the world, such as it is in the womb, all through the process of hearing. When you're born, these other senses kick on, uh, primarily sight, and you start to begin to develop this idea that the sound is caused by something. Your mother comes in and you start to see these strange things called lips beginning to move and the voice that you have heard in the womb comes out of these lips. And so you, you begin to say, oh, that's what made the voice. Uh, 
What was the first sound I remember? Oh, man. <sighs> it's so hard to remember when, um, when things occur. I remember a sound of... I mean... My mom's guitar. That's a weird one. The first sound that registered for me was my mother's voice. First sound I remember are blinds, window blinds slapping against the glass. Susan Stone. I lived in a room that faced a, a windy hill, and the wind hitting those blinds would always put me to sleep at night and always wake me up. And it was a very soft sound, very rhythmic and very comforting. Word soundscapes. I do imagine sound in slightly different ways, possibly because in becoming a maker of sound and engineering it, I often would think of it in terms of shape or depth or light or weight. I wanted the sound to inform, but also to become um, a story within a story. If there was sound that was just casual ambient sound, did it lead to something? Did it inform something? Was it a message of some sort? And that drew me increasingly to the linguistic landscape of the South, where sound often took the most profound shape in terms of how people vocalized. So for me, sound became a certain kind of storytelling. And taking storytelling even further was seeking out how the voice is music, how the voice could be percussive. Mm. The first sound I remember, like going back. An early sound in my life I think of a lot is singing in assembly programs at school. Lilies of the valley on my garden walk. Third and fourth grade. Lilies of the valley on my garden I remember the sound and the feeling of being in a room with a couple hundred other children and singing together. And it's around, and we did divide us up, and it, it was just wonderful to be immersed in this world of, I guess, all soprano voices. That comes back to me every once in a while. I still remember it. Bobby Davis. Ooh, I hear sound. Theater soundscapes. For me, the sound is a character. It's part of the way we tell the story. In theater and in uh, and in films. And so you want to work in service of what is going on. Sometimes there's something physical. Somebody shoots a gun, and you want to make you want to make a sound kind of windy, spooky sound. But a lot of times, occasionally, you're out there and you're thinking, okay, rings. We just ended a scene. Buzzes. Going to a new scene. What do I want to do? Oh, yeah. Bring it to a close. Do I want to introduce the next scene? Now it's calmer. Do I want to have a transition that morphs from the one scene to the other? Little bell-like sound. You've got these decisions that are basically 
not sonic, but dramatic. My vision of what a sound would be starts from that. You could put whales in this, they'd fit right in. A very, very prominent sound in my memory growing up is the sound, what I call the Saturday. It is the sound of woodworking tools for my neighbors, the sound of uh, lawnmowers, just a constant buzz of lawnmowers, and cows mooing on the hillside uh, around the corner from where I lived. And all of those things kind of combined, I have vivid memories of sitting in a tree, kind of listening to all of these unfold every weekend. And it was always the same. And it brings me, I can smell it. I can feel the sun. I can feel the breeze. I can transport myself just from the sheer repetition and, and striking memory of that experience of those sounds. Ronnie Brown. I'm very tactile. I'm a tactile person. My sister was the one holding the hose and I was the one getting muddy in the dirt. Foley artist. I feel, I touch, and I touch things in a lot of ways. I'm that funny person that's on the street that I see something on the street corner that someone might have thrown out and I kind of give it a kick at first to kind of hear (laughs) what it does and what it sounds like. And then if that intrigues me, I kind of go for more. And so I kind of bend down and I put my hands on it and tap it a little bit harder, softer. What does it feel like? Is it smooth? Is it rough? What, What can it give me? Soundscapes. John and Mary are going to meet for coffee in a diner. And they're walking into the diner right now. So I hear a door open. That is going to be covered by effects. So now I am concentrating on Mary's footsteps because she walks in first. She seems like she's dressed in something that might be somewhat business, might be somewhat dressy. So I'm going to assume that she's in heels. We don't see them. So it's up to the artist's imagination. I see the outfit, and to me, it makes sense to have her in some sensible heels. The surface in a diner seems to me like it would be some sort of linoleum over concrete. So I would probably keep that the entire way from the door into the table. John, on the other hand, is coming from a exercise. So I'm probably going to put him in some sneakers. When they sit down, the banquets are are leather. So we'll have a really nice slide and a really nice leather creek for them to kind of get them settled into having their coffee together. One for Mary, one for John. The Formica table is going to be where I'm going to see them put their hands, their keys, their cell phones and everything, and also their coffee cups. So the waitress will come. She's probably in some sensible shoes. I was the sound designer on several projects Eric and Klaus produced together. Randy Tom. I do think a lot about emotional notes within sounds. Film soundscapes. I guess that's what I'm trying to imagine. My approach to designing is always to experience a thing. I think in terms of what is this sound like, then react intuitively to it without much analysis. I'm looking for sinister sounds, comical sounds. The thing I'm reacting to may be a script or an idea or an image or a sound. Interestingly spaced sounds. I tend to be very analytical about the role of sound in media, but not very analytical about all the sounds themselves. Ambiguous sounds. One that stretches the audience's imagination a little bit. Creative imagination is 
really do. It's wonderful to be able to hear people the way they are and know that they have something to say in an attitude, to hear the voice of the poets and the writers, dramatists, great performers. Performers, by the way, that's another. Radio is a performance art, too. Data Soundscapes. Yes. The Hub. Hot Potato, this recording... Is this from the three CD set? Scott Gresham Lancaster and Phil Stone. We're at the Conservatory in Cuneo, Italy, and we're playing in this kind of cathedral space. And we spent like five days with these students playing with Hot Potato. So Hot Potato was based on the childhood game that you pretend a beanbag is really hot. And you catch it and you've got to throw it very fast. And so you had 400 milliseconds to throw the note <laughs> and you could throw it to anybody <laughs> and and so you just like you'd get a note and you'd play the note and then you'd throw the note you know and, and we would do this thing where we just go like and just like throw out like you know 50 notes and then you know a lot of people's code was broken so like 25 notes would go away immediately and then there'd be 25 notes like pinging around the... it was just basically kind of like Conway's game of life. It was like, and hot, and the er piece like this at the hub is something called um, wax lips. And so that's what was going on with that piece. I grew up liking it. And when I started writing, I wrote radio plays. And I listened, and radio in America was fantastic in those days. Great writers, wonderful performers, talents, everything from humor and soap operas to serious dramas. I heard my first Ibsen listening on a little radio, Philco Radio. So it was an awakener to the dramatic arts and to an outside world. Hi. Good evening, everybody. You are now listening to WLS, the voice of Prairie Farmer, Chicago. My father started taking me to Tower Records when I was probably five or six, and we go straight to the Beatles section, and I get a Beatles LP. Somehow I drifted over to the cassette room and there were these bargain basement cassette bins of Abbott and Costello and the Green Hornet and even more obscure ones, Fibber, McGee and Molly and strange stuff. And I don't know why a small child would be attracted to that. I mean, they were laughing and doing the who's on first kind of stuff, but I remember all the in-between stuff. It was like a little window into the past. The, the music, the interstitials, the commercials for Lux flakes that's that i guess that's pretty early andrew roth one incredibly rewarding project that i've done is this recreation of market street in san francisco at a particular location in 1906 right before the famous earthquake and fire archaeological soundscapes there's a a well-known film going down market street at that time just days before the earthquake and you see bicyclists and kids and cops and horses, and you see the whole sort of slice of life. But of course, there's no sound. So I've always been interested in what what, what does that feel like to, to be there? It's one thing to see a black and white movie, but for me, as I said, sound just takes me to a place. And so I wanted to go to that place. Up until fairly recently, the technology wasn't there unless you had a million dollars and you could actually hire horses and old cars and actors and then find a space as large as the intersection of Kearney and Market and then just recreate the whole thing and record it with a binaural head. But now, with the, the way that computers are, the, the processing power, I thought, well, I could actually record all of those things I'm seeing individually 
the real ones, the authentic ones, that car, that two-stroke engine, the cable cars I'm seeing, how would they sound the same or different than the cable cars we have now in San Francisco? Put that whole thing in a computer and then in a three-dimensional space start moving all the objects around you and see what that would sound like. This is Jeremiah. And we've just arrived at the tank. I'm outside. Uh, I grew up hearing of this acoustic place called the tank, which was in a mysterious location and uh, seemed to be a place that only certain people were invited to. And this was very attractive to me. I'd heard some music from there that just sounded angelic and amazing. People... um, would go in and sing and play instruments and it would reverberate for a long time and allow the people that were that were there to kind of paint in space and paint in time with their voices and with the sounds that they were making. Jeremiah Moore. So there's this effect where you sing a note, and then while it's ringing, you sing another note, and you can make chords, and you become part of the space, and the space becomes part of you. Architectural soundscapes. And it really is a different way of making sound to be enmeshed in the close loop of carefully listening to everything you do. Take it, John. For me, it's very hard to say what's the relationship between imagination and sound. Hari Hutamaki. Uh, But anyhow, these sound escapes, they are creating... Lerion Periate. Mindscapes in listeners' mind. Mindscapes. And the constant dialogue between soundscapes and mindscape. That's the most important thing. If they don't create any dialogue, then it's not worth of listening. Mindscapes. The soundscapes are suggesting all the time something to the listener which he or she doesn't expect. So it's kind of a giving suggestions, surprises all the time. Imagination in the listener's head. You're creating tensions, expectations, suggestions. Well, listen, I could say that something is happening, but you don't know what it is, or do you, Mr. Jones? The beginning of the program called Mother Alzheimer and Americana. I wanted to create, in the beginning, kind of a mood soundscape which is a bit gloomy giving the idea of 
of the Alzheimer's disease experienced by the person who has it. It's a kind of a, or might be a kind of a prison feeling. In the beginning, Tabani Rinne is playing a bass clarinet, very low, sensitive, blowing and breathing at the same time. And then you hear some chains falling on the floor, giving kind of a, maybe the hint of being in the prison, but you're not quite sure. And then my mother is calling and saying, Come and take me home. Although she's calling from her own home. One of the first sounds in my childhood was when I was visiting my grandparents. And in their neighborhood there was a old uncle and he had a mandolin in his living room's wall and I asked him can I play with that and he tuned it and then I picked a couple of sounds and was really happy I can play I've been personally defensive about my child imagination capacities and try to keep them. I find that imagination can be a way of being real and honest and open to things. I, I don't know what happens to it. I think that, uh, I hope that, I think that, I, I, maybe I think that it doesn't disappear. It's just that you have to find how to access it. Sometimes the paths in get a little bit grown over or crowded but you can find them if you if you try or maybe if you stop trying in just the right way yeah open your ears and listen a bit I think uh, we can call this what we just listened to Hirschfield but in any situation in which you are if you open your ears, it's very strange, our ears are always open because we have not eyelid, we have no ear, what, what do you call this, Ohrenlieder, we have Augenlieder, we can close the eyes, we, close the eyes. we have no earlids, we have no earlids, it's very strange, otherwise we, we close our ears sometimes and we don't listen mostly to the sounds and to the, to the life, to the acoustic life around us and I think we can call this a husky. Why don't we just listen and hear <laughs> and play and play and play? Make a husky. been listening to The Big Ponder. 
This Transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the big pond that make this series possible. <laughs>